0: 20. Luke 20 is where we left off when we last spoke on a Sunday. While you're turning there, I'll ask the Lord for his grace. Now, Heavenly Father, as we turn to consider your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding and give us the courage, Lord, to receive these words as they are, the word of God, to bow before them, to, to comply with them, and put these words into practice. We praise your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned before, I think chess is a real intriguing game. And to become a chess champion, you need a keen intellect, that goes without saying. Let me tell you about someone who knows a thing or two, or knew a thing or two, about the game. Robert James Bobby Fisher was an American chess player, widely considered one of the greatest chess players of all time. Fisher, a chess legend, started at 14, played in eight U.S. championships, winning each by at least a point. At 15 and a half, he became both the youngest grandmaster and the youngest candidate for the world championship up until that time. He won the 1963 and 64 U.S. championship 11 to 0, the only perfect score in the history of the tournament. In the early 1970s, he became the most dominant player in modern history, winning the 1970 world title by a record three and a half point margin and winning 20 consecutive games, including two unprecedented 6-0 sweeps. Fisher had separated himself from the rest of the world by a larger margin of playing skill than any other player since the 1800s. Now, he could play almost 100 people at the same time, and he was the all-time speed chess champion as well. He could play blindfolded. I don't know how you do that. He's just told where they moved. He could think up to 30 moves in advance. His IQ off the chart. Now, can you imagine an arrogant young man who gets a chess set for Christmas, beats a few of his buddies, and sees Bobby doing his thing, surrounded there in the spotlight and the paparazzi and all of that, and going up to him, steps up to him and challenges him arrogantly and with a lot of pride to a duel, you know? Can you imagine that? I mean, it's the mismatch of the century, I think you could call that. Well, here in Luke 20, something as equally ridiculous is happening A whacked out, self-deluded, wannabe theologian types are going to call Jesus into a contest, a verbal debate. And that, on his own turf, the temple courts. It's Tuesday of Passion Week here in Luke 20, and Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And as always, his opponents are challenging him. He is teaching and preaching and healing folks, and it's just a few days before the Friday on which he will die for the sins of the world. Well, in spite of Jesus' words and power and miracles, these opponents of his are still after him. And even though they see what he's doing and listen to his words, they are still out to try to trick him into making a mistake. And so the idea in this verbal chess match is to force Jesus into a dilemma where he either contradicts scripture and then loses favor with the crowds or commits religious blasphemy, which, of course, is a capital offense, or in something that he says opposes Roman law and then finding himself in hot water with the Roman government locked up or, worse yet, executed. And so, like in a chess match, when the king can't move, the game is over. And that's what they're hoping for. But this king, the Son of God, he never has a shortage of moves. Like Proverbs 21, verse 30 says, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Well, so here we are in Luke 20, as I've said And even Pilate knows that it's out of envy that all of this is happening. His opponents are jealous. The more Jesus talks, the more they lose control, and they are flocking to him. The crowds are going to him. He alone has the words of eternal life. And, uh, you know, they were feeling threatened, like they would be out of a job, and so they would be out of a job. Uh, They had to repent and humble themselves, and that's something they didn't want to do. And so they were after Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry until the very end. A great quote I read about envy, seeing that it was envy that was kind of uh, motivating these guys to uh, oppose Jesus. Keep a watchful eye out for envy if it can blind these men to the reality of God in their midst. And motivate them to destroy the sinless Son of God, what havoc can it reap in our own lives? And so watch out for envy. So now to our text, earlier in the chapter, these religious bad guys. they have been, you know, challenging Jesus' authority. You know, when Jesus kicked out the merchandisers from the temple, um, they asked him, "Where do you get that kind of authority?" And Jesus fired back with a brutal parable exposing them for the frauds that they were that spoke of their impending judgment. So the bad guys are really seeing red. Steam's coming out of their ears. They're really mad, but the Bible says that the religious teachers and the priests look for a way to arrest Jesus immediately after he told that parable because they knew that they were the bad guys in the story, but they were afraid of the people. And so they take a more subtle approach, a veiled attack with spies. So picking up at verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. That would be Pilate. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. So let's talk about this short but profound little exchange here. Um, It's easy to think of in three words that start with the letter P. Pretense, problem, and proposal. So for you note-takers, three P's. The pretense, the charade, the deception. Let's start with the question first, all right? So the question is about paying taxes to Caesar and talk about a loaded question because it's not really a question, first of all. It's an attempt to trip Jesus up, and they're using the question like a grenade, a verbal grenade. Now, everybody knows you can get into big, big trouble talking about, what, two subjects, religion and politics. Very good. I was at the gym the other morning, and somebody, yeah, yeah, it was shocking that I was at the gym. Let's, Let's get over that first shock. And some lady threw her head back and said in a very loud voice something about Meg Whitman. And honestly, it just sounded like the music in the gym stopped, and all the steermasters stopped, and every head went... <laughs> you know, there's something about talking about politics. What is that? It really goes down to both politics and religion. It's how we think about being governed who has the right over our lives, who has control. And it gets to the core of who we are. And so what these guys did was kind of take a lethal mix of religion and politics, put it in a little bomb, and tossed it at Jesus. A hush falls. A political, religious, problematic question. Well, first of all, like I said, it's not really a question. It's It's a disguised attack by these young, unknown disciples with unfamiliar faces. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Gospels tell us, they get together, these young guys who nobody knows their faces, so that they can look sincere. They're not the uh, familiar faces who would be trying to stumble, so it would seem like an honest uh, question. So they're honest and humble and earnest seekers, but the scriptures tell us otherwise. The word there in the Greek for spies is someone hired to lie in wait. The word in Greek for pretend is to play a part on on a stage. The word there to catch Jesus in his words in the Greek epilambano, to pounce upon like a crazed, ravenous animal on its unsuspecting prey. And so the scriptures really show us what you can't see from looking on the outside. Looking on the outside, you see these wide-eyed, you know, humble truth-seekers. Good teacher, oh, we really like you. Uh, Can you help us out with this big problem? And the scriptures say it was all a charade. Well, Not only is the question disguised, but the question's kind of prepared with flattery. It's slathered in this nauseating flattery. Here's the paraphrase. Teacher, you're a good man. Your words are true, and your teaching is right on. You're a man of integrity. You're no respecter of person. You just tell it the way it is. You're not swayed by anyone. Not even someone very powerful like a pagan Roman emperor. Hey, speaking of someone like that, do you think it's cool, do you think it's cool for God's own people to pay a useless tax to a pagan ruler who claims to be God, to live on their own land, the land that God gave them? We're just wondering your opinion, good teacher. Well, it's kind of a loaded question, There, as you can tell, everybody's leaning forward, including the armed guards with their spear in hand. They want to hear the answer to this. Well, first of all, when they say good teacher, my first question to them is, Then, if he's such a good teacher, why don't you do what he says? I love when I meet non-Christians who tell me that the Lord is a good teacher. Really? If he's a good teacher... Why don't you obey his words? How can he be a good teacher if he's telling you falsehoods? And so all of these claims that Jesus is a good teacher, he's only a good teacher if what he's saying is good. And if what he's saying is good, then you ought to do and put it into practice. Well, flattery is what's going on here. It's useless with Jesus. Flattery bounces off Jesus like raindrops off a raincoat. Here's a a definition. Gossip is something you would never say to someone's face. And flattery is something you would never say behind their backs (laughs) because you don't believe it to be true. So why would you repeat it? In this case, that's exactly what's going on. Now, you know PJ, our son who leads worship, is a, one funny young man. And he used to have this habit when he wanted something. This is what would happen. He'd come up from behind and start giving me a neck rub. And so I'd be getting into the neck rub, and he would say, delightful father. <laughs> you know that sounds exactly like him, right? Because that's what he did. Delightful father, how long has it been since I listed all your positive attributes? (laughs) (laughs) And I would just ask him, well, okay, is it the car keys, or is it money, or what do you need, PJ? You know, I prefer it just comes straight out like that, actually. So uh, he's a funny boy, for sure. Ironically, (laughs) everything, I'm on to you today, just in case. You really praise this sermon, which I don't think you're going to do. <laughs> well, ironically, it's all true about Jesus. Now, if Peter, the other Peter in the Bible, if he would have said these same words to the Lord by the campfire, Lord, you know what we, we love about you? You don't care about who you're talking to. You just tell it the way it is. You're good, and everything you see is just and true and right. You see, that would have been fine. Compliment or or being grateful about uh, somebody, an accolade or two, there's nothing wrong with that. It's all about intent. And of these guys, the proverb is true. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. That's Proverbs 29, verse 5. And that's a problem. Because they're flattering him so that They can get what they want, and what they want is to trip him up. So, number two, the problem. By now you see the trap. You know, Jesus is kind of on the horns of a dilemma, as we say. If he says a flat-out yes, he's going to alienate thousands of those who are coming to him to hear the good news. You know, um, the tax, I don't know about you, but taxes were not very popular. Back in the day, you know, nobody likes to pay taxes. And the Jews did not like paying taxes to a pagan ruler. They were in their own land that God gave them. And they were being occupied by Rome. And uh, plus, you know, the little denarius, it was a small silver coin weighing 3.8 grams. On one side, the head of Caesar, abbreviated inscription saying Tiberius Caesar Caesar. Son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. Son of the divine Augustus. And so for the Jew, paying this tax, by the way, the poll tax, was just a tax to say, thank you that uh, I get to live here. It it went for nothing except to say, you owe Caesar a thank you, about a hundred bucks, so pay up. Well, you know, with his image on there and his claim to be God, they just saw it as breaking the second commandment. It was very, very unpopular. And so, he, you know, a yes would really um, blow them out of the water. Now, what they wanted him to say is no, resist, question authority, resist the tax, don't pay. Now, there were two million excited pilgrims there for Passover. And so the Romans were watching out for this kind of zealous behavior that would uh, kind of lead to a revolt. And so here, the son of God saying in the temple courts, no, don't pay. You know, that would get him in a lot of trouble. It would be treasonous. So that's their desire. That's why they're slathering him with flattery, because they want him to say, you know, they're saying, hey, you're the kind of guy that doesn't care who's in the audience. You're going to say the truth even if it were Caesar. So they want him to say, yeah, no, I'm here to deliver you. You don't have to pay that tax, you know, but Jesus is smarter than all of that. He's going to answer now, but first he lets them know that he's on to them. You know, over and over in the Gospels, it says a curious little phrase, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, you know, He is the Son of God. I read a quote that said, The maker of each human heart knows the contents therein. He knows what's in our hearts. Talk about a look that goes right through you. The Son of God turns to them and exposes them. Matthew and Mark both say this. Jesus is aware of their evil intentions and calls them hypocrites and asks them why they are trying to trap him. So now the crowd and everybody knows that these are fakers and they're trying to trip Jesus up. What's striking to me is that he looks at them and calls them on the carpet and says, I know exactly who you are and what's in your heart. I know exactly your motive. And that's amazing to me. You know, when my wife looks at me sometimes, there's that look like, wow, She's, she can see straight through me. And I can look at her like that as well, because I know her well, and she knows me. But can you imagine? I mean, have you ever had an MRI? You see your image there? Have you ever seen that? That's an amazing 3D image of your body, and it just looks right through you. Well, we're not talking about an MRI or a CT, but we're talking about a GOD scan. Now, <laughs> A G.O.D. scan is like very complete and it could be very scary. You know, Paul, the apostle in Romans two says something very interesting to me. He says there's a day coming when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. According to my gospel. Well, gospel means good news. Now, how is that good news that God is going to judge our secrets? He knows everything that we've ever thought or done or spoken. Well, the gospel, the good news is this. Though he knows everything about me, he loves me. And he sent Christ to die on the cross to atone for those sins and to cover me and my shame. That on that day I will stand before him and he will give me a G.O.D. scan as everybody has coming. And I'll do okay, because he will look at me and he will say, I see no fault in you, because I'm covered, according to my gospel, the good news. And so he looks at them, he looks straight through them, and he exposes them for the frauds that they are, and then he gives a proposal, number three. His proposal has two components. Jesus' answer is this, A, you have an obligation to the state b you have an obligation to god so here's the paraphrase all right jesus answers them this way he says let's see here who's got one of those roman coins now take a look at it whose picture's that caesar's right whose name is that inscribed there it's the emperor's right so it must belong to him therefore go ahead and give back to caesar what you owe Caesar, and more importantly, pay to God what you owe God. Jesus is saying that at the moment, his people hold dual citizenship with responsibilities and obligations in both realms. And here is one of the greatest sound bites of all history render to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning we have an obligation as believers to the state. So first of all, he says, show me a coin, proving that they are using the coin. So by showing a coin, they are saying, we use these coins. We benefit from these coins. We trade with them. We are blessed by using this currency. And so his first thing is to pull it out of your pocket and see that you are using them and by using them and having them in your possession you are saying that you have an unspoken duty to caesar and so now the new testament teaching really cautions us against accepting spiritual responsibilities with a diminished view of earthly responsibility what is it about christians we we become believers and then suddenly we know that god is our ruler And we think that means that we don't have to obey laws or submit to anybody else. It's like, you know, the world's the bad guy. Now I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm going to heaven. So we forget about our moral responsibilities here. Why don't you turn with me to, real quick, to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7, an elaboration of what Jesus is talking about, rendering to Caesar, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he'll commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, verse 5. It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. <laughs> give everyone what, it, what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right, we'll stop there, because I think that's enough. (laughs) Now, I asked my Romanian students for their favorite scripture, and out of 23 students, none none of them named this one. Now, I was so surprised. It's, It's not my favorite one either. Now, here's what Warren Wiersbe says. Governmental authority is instituted by God and must be respected, Yes, our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, and we are like foreigners here on earth, but that doesn't mean we should ignore our earthly responsibilities. Human government is essential to a safe and orderly society, for man is a sinner and must be kept under control. Government, as imperfect as it is, is better than no government at all. John Calvin. No man should think he is giving less service to the one true God when he obeys human laws, pays taxes, or bows his head to accept any other um, obligation or burden. Now, speaking of Romania, I was taking a walk with my pastor, who's been my mentor for 31 years. We're taking a walk there in Oradia, and I made a disparaging remark about our current president. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, who put him there? And I was going to come up with some line about crazy voters. but (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry. If you did vote for him, I don't mean any offense. I'm trying to make a point and call myself on the carpet, actually. So he said, who put him there? And I ultimately had to say, the Lord. And then he said, perhaps you should pray more and complain less. (laughs) Now, everybody needs a mentor, and I highly recommend someone like that. (laughs) Now, this rendering to Caesar, that's a very difficult thing, isn't it? One of the greatest challenges of the Christian life is rendering to Caesar what's due Caesar, because there's just justifiable dislike of government that often stands for values the gospel opposes. There are conflicting values. There's immorality. There's a legislation against the gospel and things that matter to God. There's corrupt politicians. But the Lord is saying, Do not throw the baby out with the bath water. And I read this quote I'd like to share with you. Can we take a stand against immoral issues without condemning the legislator or the legislature? Can we disagree with the politician while respecting the office they hold? Can I be a good citizen, though ruled by fallen and sinful people? It's hard. God expects his people to be model citizens, not whining, complaining, rebel rousers, whatever that word means. So Jesus assumes the validity of the secular state, even if the guy thinks he's God, which Caesar did. Now, there are, of course, limits to the authority of the state and Caesar. Number one, Christians must resist when asked to violate a command of God. That's very clear in Acts chapter 4 and 5. They have been forbidden by the Jewish high court, the apostles, that is, of preaching the gospel. They said, we forbid you to preach in that name. And so they preach in the name. They get tossed in the slammer. Then an angel sets them free and tells them, quote, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. So they see them out preaching the gospel, and they said, we commanded you do not speak this name in public. And he said there, we must obey God and not men. Now, we never comply when it's unethical or immoral or it violates our conscience. And you do have one. It's very important that you know that you have a conscience and that you don't uh, sin against your own conscience. When I was in Oradia. I went out to a very late dinner with two missionaries and the three of us alone. So I'm in a basement restaurant in the middle of Romania and with two men of God. And both men ordered a beer and it came to me. And I just thought that sounded good. And I went to order the beer and it didn't come out of my mouth. And I said, no, I'll pass. I'll have a Coke light, which they have Coke light everywhere in the world, including Romania. <laughs> now, why did I do that? Conscience, my conscience tells me personally, me personally, that's wrong for you. It was not wrong, and it is not wrong, and it does not say you cannot drink beer in the Bible. It is not a sin. But for me, my conscience, every time I go to order something like that, if I'm in a place where I feel like, hey, you know, I'm in Romania, I'm with two men of God, they're both missionaries, they're both drinking what's wrong. No, it doesn't work. Now, what is that? You have one of those. And it needs to be biblical. It needs to be sound. And you need to obey it. You do not sin against that. Do not ever justify with your mind what your heart condemns. God has given you a conscience. And regarding entertainment, places you go, how you dress, it doesn't matter what the two missionaries in front of you are doing. It really doesn't. You have a conscience. And you need to obey it. Well, moving on now. So the believer has an obligation to uh, the state and it includes paying taxes And just for fun, Luke 23 verse 1 says that the crowd was uh, claiming that Jesus was telling people that they should not pay their taxes to Caesar. So it doesn't matter how good you answer. You know, evil people will always pervert your good words as they did to Jesus. And so, okay, the believer has an obligation to the state and it includes paying taxes. And now the more weightier matter, give to God what belongs to God. And I say it's more weightier because the commentators say that the grammatical construction of how Jesus is speaking is saying that the thing that comes next is more important. And so he's saying, more importantly, give to God what belongs to God. So we see what here Welcome to divine strategy number one. He uses this all the time. He turns the conversation and makes it personal. The important issue here, Jesus is saying, it's not about government, not about paying taxes. It's not about morality. It's not about politics or religion. It's about you. And he looks them square in the face and says, how about you? Coins go to Caesar because the stamp of the image. How about you in your life? Who, to whom do you belong? Your heart, your soul, your relationship with God, and the obligation that all humans share. So he looks into their eyes, and he just says it. He breaks it down so simple. The coin belonged to Caesar because his image was stamped on it. We should give ourselves to God because his image is stamped on us. Jesus is using a logic here that theologians will coin as the imago Dei, and the image of God. And let me give you a quick theological definition as we wrap up our time together. Genesis one twenty seven states that God created man in His own image. This means that human beings have a natural resemblance to God; that is, they possess the power of reason and intellect, the ability to love the will to choose, and are eternally self-aware. These things set man apart from all of God's creation. They differ from rocks and trees and plants and animals because they bear the image of God, though marred now because of sin. Because the soul is aware of its own existence, it is also aware of his and cannot rest or have peace until it's joined to the one who gave it life, until it's united with the substance of the image it currently bears. So Jesus is just saying, look at your face, man. Look at your life. You have a soul. You exist. Whose image do you reflect? It's God. The fact that you're here means that there's a God. And you owe him your life because your life doesn't belong to you. You didn't will yourself into being. You didn't give birth to yourself. You're here because somebody created you and your soul at some level knows that. And all he's saying is you need to comply with the state. But more importantly, you need to comply with your matters of your own soul. And that is to give your soul back to God. Psalm 100 verse 3 Know that the Lord is God, it is he who made us, and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. It is he who made us. We are not our own. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And we do that not once at conversion, not just when you raise your hand and say the sinner's prayer, but it's a daily rendering to God our thoughts and our, our speech, our actions, our affections, our agendas and goals and dreams, those come back to him because he is the one who made us. I like Matthew sixteen twenty five that says, Whoever wants to find himself without me will wind up losing his life. But whoever loses his life by handing it over to me will find himself and the life that they've always wanted. You know, that day in 1979 when I walked out of that disco, a born-again Christian, after 19 years of kind of searching for the meaning of life and looking for myself, I gave my life to Christ. And that night, I remember thinking, I have found that last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. I put that into place, and I get it. It's not perfect, but I have found the reason that I exist, the Lord the creator of heaven and earth, and not only the creator of heaven and earth, but the creator of me. It's a wonderful thing to find the Lord and yield your life to him. So as we bow our heads and close our eyes, I'm to pray for you, especially the person who may have not rendered to God the thing that is God, and that is your very life. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have taught us through your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, for those among us who have been withholding what is rightfully due you, the God who made them and stamped your image upon their soul and their being. I pray for our friends here who are seeking, Lord, to find out who they are and all the questions of life that they would find in you the answer they would give to God what belongs to God. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Everybody said amen. Let's stand together. Closing song.